Oh, oh, oh. 
This is Sarah Glidden. Her latest book is How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less. Yep. Or Less. I should grab a copy of the books like that. Want to talk? Um, that came out in the November. November from uh, Vertigo DC Comics. Fancy, mm-hmm. fancy mainstream <laughs> publisher. Um, her latest work is the cartoon movement, um, or the piece for the cartoon movement, as well as a whole bunch of different journalistic endeavors, which we shall get into. Yeah. That sounds good. And I'm Robin. I host the Ink Studs radio show out of Vancouver, where I talk with folks about comics. Something like this, only you don't get to see us, and there's no visuals to go along with it. So, And Robin and I already talked about the Israel book at length on the site, so you can go find it <laughs> on the archives. And <laughs> we won't talk about it again here. We'll much. talk about it a little. Okay. <laughs> Whatever you want, you're the host. Moderate. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe we'll start out with, because everything's going to kind of cover geographically the area so maybe tell me or tell the audience what it was specifically about the Middle East that is drawing you in as a topic oh gosh I don't know well you know the reason I did the book on Israel for a little bit of background I the book that I did on Israel was I went on this thing called the birthright Israel trip which is a free trip for anyone who's Jewish in between 18 and 27 and I went because I had just started doing comics. I had been doing journal comics to kind of get into the practice of making um, visual storytelling. And I was looking for a larger work, and I wanted to do something that kind of addressed more global issues and stuff beyond what I did every day. Um, and there is, I found out about this birthright thing a while back, and I had always been hesitant to go, but I decided to go and to do a book about that because it seemed it's a free trip first of all and it's always something that interested me as growing up as a secular Jewish person um, just like kind of like as an unreligious Jew Israel is always kind of like put in your face um, this is your country and this is your land and um, this is uh, could be your home if you wanted to move there and being someone who came from like a pretty left wing background I always had a lot of trouble with kind of the government there and a lot of the issues there. So I thought that I could go on this trip and see how they presented that conflict and do a comic about that. And it would be a good and cheap way for me to do something longer. Um, And so this was kind of my introduction to that region as a place to travel to. And that's where the personal connection came from. Kind of having someone tell you that you have this connection with this place that you have a lot of trouble with makes you feel like you're responsible for it in some way and that, you know, if, you're, if they're telling you this is your country too, then fine, this is my country too. I need to really do some work to reconcile how I feel about it. Um, and that also applies to the rest of the region because as an American, our country has had a lot of influence in that region and has kind of, you know, put their fingers into a lot of the different situations over there. So again, it's kind of this we're involved whether we like it or not, so I'm going to go over there and um, try and investigate exactly what that's about. And this more recent trip that we went on was to look into the results of 10 years of war on terror. Um, the Iraq war, um, to a lesser extent, some of our involvement in Syria and Lebanon. Um, so that's kind of the reason why we got interested in the Middle East in the first place, but also just I think different people have different regions that they're drawn to. 
and the Middle East has always been really fascinating to me just because there's so much history and there's a lot of really interesting stories that come out of there. So yeah. it's a general, <laughs> general interest. G- doing the tour, um, what was your response as far as did you have a feeling of home of any sort or was it kind of overshadowed by propaganda focus um, of the tour? In Israel? Well, it's interesting. Home is wherever you feel like people treat you like it's your home. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in New York now, and when I first went there, you know, a decade ago, as soon as you get off the bus, you feel like you're a New Yorker just because everybody's from somewhere else. It's really hard to find a native New Yorker walking around the streets of New York City. Everybody's coming from either another state or another country. So you feel at home because you look around and everyone else is the same as you and also people just treat you like you belong there. And with Israel, it's kind of the same way because none of the Jewish Israelis you meet there or from there are very, very few. They're all from another country, at least a couple generations back, if not more immediately, and they all treat you, if you're Jewish, like you belong there. If you're not Jewish, it might be a little different. But So it's, again, that thing where you see other people who are kind of in the same spot as you, and you're being told by the people who live there that, yeah, you belong here. So there's that kind of feeling at home just from that fact. Do I feel like I could live there? Probably not. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it is, there's that. How did it um, kind of prep you for the next project you took on as far as, like, experientially um, going through this trip and then the next thing we're going to be talking about with the trip you just did. What did you take from that that you could use? Well, a lot of things, because this was my first comics piece that was longer than eight pages, mm-hmm. and it's 200 pages. So just, you know, at first just working on something that's long and that you have to think about what your story arc is going to be, even as applied to um, something that's nonfiction, not autobiographical, to look beyond just what is this scene to look at okay how are these many scenes going to work together into something that means something more than what's immediately happening Uh, that was something that was really nice to get a chance to work with in that book but also this was kind of that book was a kind of a bridge between autobio and something that talked about something else it was still memoir and it was still all about my subjective experience and a lot of my interior thoughts but it also gave me a chance to, we kind of, we talked to all these different speakers and we went to a lot of different places and I got a chance to write about some of the history of these different places. So it was this bridge I got to work within the framework of autobio, of journal comic and memoirs, but to kind of have that safe place, which I was familiar with from doing daily journal comics, but be able to reach out from there, from that platform Mm -hmm. and test out the waters. So when I did this project, which is, I'm still going to be a character in it, but in a very peripheral sense. Um, I got to use some of that experience that I had with the actual book. Um, so yeah, it was transition. Right now we have up a page, I think it's the first page from the cartoon movement mm-hmm. story. What's it called? It's called The Waiting Room. The Waiting Room. Um, I was really interested reading the story, how your approach has changed. Um, where you've really removed yourself. I mean, you are, the way I see it, is we're kind of seeing it through your eyes. Yeah. This piece is 
really different from actually the book length project. I should give a little background. I think. Do you want me to show some of that? Sure. Yeah. Before we go into that, Um, so I have these friends who are journalists. I've always been really, really interested in journalism in general because, you know, as a news junkie, we can read the news every day or listen to it on NPR. But uh, you want this one? Yeah. Is that too big? It'll it'll shrink. Okay. But we don't really know a lot about how your journalism is made. And I've always been really interested in finding out more about that. Now, I have some friends who are journalists, so this works out really well. And we had, for a long time, been talking about doing a collaborative work together, where I would follow them on an international reporting trip and do a book about how they work. So these friends of mine were planning this trip to the region surrounding Iraq and in Iraq. So southeastern Turkey, northern Iraq, and Syria, to look into, you know, the results of the Iraq war and the war on terror. And so I went with them in order to do this longer project about how they work and um, how they interact with the countries. But then also from the material that we reported on, I'm doing these smaller pieces. So the waiting room is one of those uh, short projects that I'll be working on from that material. And it's really from their reporting because I was just shadowing them. I wasn't setting up the interviews and I wasn't conducting the interviews. So this is all working from their reporting that they did in their interviews, but I'm taking their transcripts. Um, well, I'm transcribing their audio. <laughs> I get to do all the work for them. <laughs> <laughs> and then editing it and writing a piece and trying to think about the narrative. Um, but for c- because I didn't do the reporting, I'm not a character in this one. Um, so I completely took myself out of it. I think they show up in two different panels, but you don't see their faces. It, it's just more about this kind of more removed reporting because I wanted this to be just kind of straight journalism. Um, but the piece, the book-length piece that I'm going to be doing with them is going to be a lot more subjective and a lot more about the behind-the-scenes of journalism and the human relationships that go into making journalism happen. So in that, they're definitely going to be characters, and I'm going to be the kind of observer character, too. One thing we've been talking about before here is you've been curious about the ethics of what you're doing. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, first I'm interested what uh, why have these heavy concerns, and then what are they, and how have you alleviated them? Well... Or is that too much? <laughs> that's a lot of questions. Um, when you're doing memoir, your only responsibility, I think, is to be honest. And that's really easy to do when all you have to do is talk about your flaws and you know your emotional hang-ups and that's what I did with the Israel book I really wanted to make it clear this was my subjective experience and I showed my thought process and you know doubts that I had and um, kind of all these emotional problems I was going through and that's really different than when you're reporting on someone else because now you have some people that you care about deeply after doing reporting on them or with them and you are caring for someone else's story and you want to do a good job with it and you want to be responsible. So how do you do that? Because you not only want to tell the truth about them, but you want to be sensitive um, and you don't know what it's like inside their heads. So there's a lot of um, problems that you come across doing that, especially because when I'm illustrating my internal thoughts, I know what they look like and I can just draw them. But when I'm talking to someone and they're telling me a story, that I wasn't there to witness, 
how do I draw something that I didn't see? Um, so this is something that, you know, it's just something to think about. And, you know, in talking to other people who do this, you know, it's just that you have to be as honest as you can and not get hung up on these little details. But it is something that, yeah, I think about. Because when you read a piece of journalism, whether it's comics journalism or prose, you're trusting the journalist that mm -hmm. they're telling you the truth. Um, and so I just worry about being really careful with that, what I think is the truth, and keeping it pretty close to reality. But there's only so far that you can go when you weren't there to see the reality. I don't know if that it, makes sense. Well, it's hard to create a definitive truth. And, right. You know, like in a lot of ways, at least my idea in journalism is you're creating your perspective of that truth and trying to piece together as much as you can. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm going a little too abstract in terms. <laughs> well, it's true. It's like, you know, if there's one event and several people witness the event, each of their interpretations of that event is going to be different and mm -hmm. each of them is going to be true, you know? Yeah. Which one is more true? There's, there's no answer. But if you're one removed from that, you're listening to one person's interpretation of what happened, then you're a little bit farther away from the truth. So all you can do is, you know, kind of just trust that you're doing the best you can to represent that, I think. Who do you pull from um, for influence in journalism? Not just comics, but... Well, my... Um, what I'm really the most into is uh, subjective journalism, also called new, new journalism. Um, some of the older masters are like Tom Wolfe, um, but also people like um, Susan Orleans, a anything that you might read in The New Yorker, people who kind of put themselves into the piece a little bit and kind of show the seams of what they're doing and show that themselves as a character observing this. Also, some of my favorite fiction writers like David Foster Wallace, George Saunders also do nonfiction work like that that I really enjoy. Um, and then, of course, there's these seasoned war reporters like Dexter Flickens and um, Chris Hedges, who are just great. So I really try to take in a lot of as many influences as I can. Of course, in the comics world, you have Joe Sacco, who's you know probably the best example of comics journalism you can find out there. Um, Why don't we look at some of the photos? Okay. I want to. Did you want to talk about any of these ones? Oh, specific? this is this is just um, notes from the trip. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> um, something about going on uh, this reporting trip is that people think that you're going to get a, do a lot of sketching, um, and you don't really get to do that much sketching because you're writing a lot. This is probably the most sketch-heavy page in my whole notebook. Um, and that was just because we had two different recorders running, so finally I had some time to draw. But most of the time, you're just trying to write down what everybody says. Even though I have audio recordings going at the same time, you want to write down key things that people are saying so you know what to go back to and you know what you are paying attention to at the time. Um, but what else do we have in here? Um, do we have the pictures of the border crossings? Uh, I think that might be another... Because that is one great thing about comics is that you're allowed to draw in places that you're not allowed to take pictures. And I would try to take pictures as much as I could on this trip, but places like the um, Iraqi border, you definitely can't be taking any pictures there. So here I am at the border just kind of frantically drawing as quickly as possible so that I'll be able to 
you know, draw and paint for this later. That's a Syrian border, um, obviously. And we went to an illegal cockfight. Um, so that's also another situation where you want to, these are all the guys watching the, the fight and you want to, and this is going too quickly. Yeah. <laughs> go back. We'll go back. Go back a couple. Okay. So, yeah, this is a place where comics can really work to your advantage and having the skills to, to draw these things happening because otherwise, how would you know how to draw them later? So this is our cockfight. Um, if you want to go a couple over. Um, we had some interviews with Iraqi refugees where I really they wouldn't have felt comfortable being photographed. Um, so I ended up drawing them. And actually, I used this drawing for the piece in the cartoon movement because these were some of the people that we interviewed for that piece. There's a thing from a couple of guys I talked to about the use of sketchbook. Um, Gary Panter specifically um, has talked about how important it is to kind of catch that moment in the sketchbook. Like something like this. It's interesting because you can see through a different lens than you would with a photo where you're kind of what's sticking out to you and you're grabbing Mm -hmm. and it's kind of more of a a motive Mm -hmm. record. Yeah, and that is good. I mean, Gary Gary Panter's work is so far from <laughs> what I'm trying to do. Um, but I just mean from, from, a teaching, from, a, from a teaching thing. Like yeah. He did that um, 9-11 sketchbook. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, you're going for two things with comics journalism, um, and one of them is that emotion. Yeah. You know, because you're using the drawings to give people this emotional entry point into a story and into a person's life so that they can really start to care about this person and get into their world a little bit. The other thing is you want to show um, a sense of place. And that's somewhere where I use a lot of photos because like, I really want to be accurate about what a place looks like, especially doing this kind of stuff about places in the world that we have a lot of preconceived notions about. This is like Israel and Syria, where people have this idea of what they look like and it's completely different from what it actually is like you know for Israel people imagine just only people walking around with guns and just you know exploded things and the wall and like what you don't see is the really banal stuff the just ugly shopping malls and the suburban houses which I think is really important to remind people that even these places that are full of conflict are places where people live every day and have try to have normal lives at least um, and then places like Syria we met this one guy in Syria he was a, a reporter for Syrian TV and he did a fellowship a week long fellowship in Los Angeles and he said that he was staying with this very nice American family in Los Angeles you know very educated people and they asked to see a picture of him in Syria so he decided he'd play you know play a little joke and he took out he found a picture on his computer of him riding on a camel in Palmyra which is like <laughs> this touristy spot with ruins and stuff and uh, he's like yeah this is how I get to work every day in Damascus <laughs> and the family was like oh wow cool yeah that's a great camel he's like you actually believe this like no like this is just you know it was a joke but that's what it's like you know we have these images of places and I think that you can use comics to at the same time while you're talking about people's stories show them what is this place like in reality and so, for that reason, I like to take a lot of reference photos. Um, 
in addition to sketching what I can. So it's creating a personal relationship with the subject? With the way? subject and with the place. Because you spend some time in the place and it starts to become familiar and, you know, these little boring things, like the you when you your walk from the hotel to the place where you get breakfast every day, you start to notice this one flower pot or this wall or that one building and those things that you start to become familiar with, they're like people. And I think when you're making a comic, those are the things that you want to show to people too because this is you're forming this relationship with this place. One thing, because you're covering such a war-torn area, you're hearing a lot of pretty heavy stories. How do you process trauma when you're kind of taking in all this heavy stuff? Well, I haven't had to experience any of the heavy stuff myself. You know, you're talking to people who have experienced mm-hmm. it. That's what I mean, though. Like yeah. here you're kind of you're hearing firsthand, you know, the tragedy someone's gone through. It's hard, and I'm a beginner at this. You know, I'm a beginning reporter. Basically, on this last trip, I was a reporter with training wheels. You know, and I was just kind of shadowing my friends who were doing like the major question asking. But even just being there in a room when someone's telling you about their brother who was beheaded because he painted a fence for some American soldiers and how he like found his brother's body on his front steps, like this stuff. (laughs) You know, you're just using every fiber of your being to not like burst out into tears and run out of the room it's really really hard and um there were times when i was just like basically like crying and trying to like hide my you know turn around like this um because how do you listen to that and be a normal person and i asked my friend sarah who is a lead reporter exactly that question how do you deal with this and she said you know it is hard and you take this on and sometimes you, ha- you just have to wait. You have to wait until when the interview's over and you leave to have a good cry. And she's like, a lot of times you do, but you have to really do everything that you can to be focused and be strong and let that person tell their story because, you know, this isn't your time to, you know, relive those emotions. It's their time to tell their story and to have those emotions if they need to. And then you can have your little... A little Your moment time. later. Yeah, but it is hard. Um, and, you know, I hope that there would never be a time when someone's story like that wouldn't affect me in, in some way, you know. But, yeah. Where <laughs> 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 um, to come? I think we're done with these photos. Okay, um, get out of there. Do you want to look at the miniatures or the uh, this stuff? Sure. I mean, we can talk about that stuff. Let's talk about the the waiting room. Okay. Um, so this is in Syria? Yes. Um, oh, it's doing that thing again. Oh, oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, so the last leg of our most recent trip, we ended up in Damascus, and this was because in Syria has the highest pr- um, population of Iraqi refugees out of any other neighboring country. And so we wanted to go there and talk to people about their experience and what it's like to be a refugee from Iraq. And there's a lot of, first of all, the Iraqi refugee situation is completely underreported and no one really thinks about that. We think about the Iraq war, um, if we think about it at all, because most people don't. Ever since, you know, the administration changed, we've kind of pushed that war to the side. We don't really think about it anymore. It's winding down, the troops are being withdrawn, and 
we're focusing on Afghanistan and now on Tunisia, Egypt, and everything else that's happening in Libya. Um, but Iraq is still the a same mess. as it ever was, a mess. And there is a cost to everything that happened besides all the people who died, and that is the people who are displaced. Um, I think when it comes to wars, we, we look at the numbers of people who are killed. And, you know, those are important numbers, but they become very abstract, and it just becomes, okay, sad thing, they all died. But we don't think about the people who are still alive and who are living with all of, you know, every number of, every person that was killed has someone who loved them who is still alive. And a lot of these people have been pushed out of their homes. So a lot of them are in Damascus, and we went there to talk to them. Uh, and the situation is really difficult because these people can't really go anywhere. They, there's a small percentage of them that can get resettled into another country, like in the U.S., Canada, or Europe. But when that does happen, it's, it's not like they have a new life. It's very difficult for resettled immigrants in this country, especially. Um, and they can't go back to Iraq because the country's still a mess and most of their lives are in danger. So they basically are just sitting um, in Damascus waiting for something to happen and kind of completely powerless. So that's what this piece is about. I have a coworker who is um, Kurdish and she's telling me about coming to Canada after the, the Gulf War because I mean, it just wasn't safe for Kurds at that point. And it's really fascinating just to hear just the experience of then coming to Canada and just really still not being able to amalgamate into it. And like yeah. Family displacement and it's just it's so horrible. It's tough and you know we met some great these great people, a couple that are my age, you know they're like in their late 20s um, and they're artists, and you know they're really, really fun. They're getting resettled. They said they were getting resettled to Seattle. They're like, great, you know, my friends from the Common Language Project, the reporters I went to, live in Seattle. Um, but then they found out that no, they're actually getting resettled to I forget what the town is called, but it's about an hour outside of Seattle, where they have like a distant uncle. <laughs> and you know, this is you're coming from Damascus. You're coming from Baghdad first, which is a, a big city. Then they're in Damascus, which is, they can't work, but at least it's still a city, they have a lot of friends. And then you're going to a new country, and you're going to be in the boonies, basically, where you, they don't have a car, and they won't have a job in a really crappy economy. And so resettlement is not the end, and okay, new life, happily ever yeah. after. It's just a new set of challenges. So, you know, and they're, they, they're going to have it easy because they speak English, and they're young. Yeah. But... You know, they have a lot of a lot of people who get resettled. They're single mothers with kids um, That's exactly who like don't this, speak any English. This situation, yeah. like they spoke this odd yeah. dialect of Kurdish, and you know, kind of yeah. find a lot of Kurdish-speaking people in Alberta. Yeah, <laughs> and in America, at least, you have to pay for your plane ticket. So you're expected, as a refugee who's getting resettled, to get a job and then pay back the plane ticket from Syria to America, which those are expensive plane tickets. <laughs> so this is, like, really a, sh a crappy situation for everyone involved. Um, through, tell me about the uh, the school program that you got to, uh, you know, talking about in this project. Yeah, the Iraqi Student Project. Um, this was actually a project started by a couple Americans. They were working with an organization called Voices in the Wilderness, which was trying to raise awareness about the sanctions. This was before the invasion. Um, and they went to Damascus to work on their Arabic 
and they saw that this, this problem of all of these young people coming into Iraq, um, I'm sorry, into Damascus, and you're able to get primary and secondary education for free in Damascus, but once you turn 18, if you want to get higher education, you have to pay $5,000 a year, which is m more money than most people can afford, so they're stuck without any higher education. And so these people, Gabe and Teresa, decided to start this project called the Iraqi Student Project, where they help these students for a year, um, kind of prepare them to apply to colleges to try and get them tuition waivers to American schools. The idea being, like, this is a way to, for Americans to make reparations that these kids can come to colleges for free, get the education that they're being denied in Syria, and then eventually go back to Iraq and help rebuild their country with that education. So yeah. it's a really cool project, and we interviewed a bunch of the students. Um, and they're just amazing kids. You used the phrase, uh, was it brain drain? Yeah, brain drain. They're, they're very, Gabe and Teresa are very sensitive about the idea of just taking the best and brightest Iraqi refugees and bringing them to America and not bringing them back. They specifically screen for students who feel a really strong connection to their home and who want to go back and help rebuild it again. Um, we have some process, artistic process stuff, I think, right? Okay. Um, has you changed up approaches a bit for this project? Yes. Um, one of the problems with working on a really long book when you just started doing comics, because when I started the Israel book, I had only been doing comics for about six months. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have to have a consistent style for the next two years. So I was drawing like this for that, and I liked it. You know, I, I had just started doing watercolors because Vertigo wanted it to be in color. And so I experimented with a bunch of different things really quickly and settled on this style where I would do watercolors and then kind of ink um, outlines, um, a little bit like Tintin, some of this clear line European stuff that I really liked. Um, but you want to be consistent, so you're kind of locked into working one way. And it kind of stunts your growth as an artist to have a long project right after you start doing comics because you can't really say, well... Maybe I want to try drawing like this a little bit because that would look really strange in the middle of a book to kind of shift gears and do something differently. So as soon as I was done with this book and had the opportunity to do a, a shorter project like The Waiting Room, I was really excited at the idea of maybe I'll try something new now that I have a chance to switch things around a little bit. So this is a sample page from just for a proposal for the new book. Um, and I liked it. It was the same way I'd been working before. But then I started looking at some other artists' work and at Ottoman and Persian miniatures, which are almost like comics. They're very flat color. They are often sequential. You know, you have these epic poems that use these illustrations to show the different characters and what they're doing. And I just studied them, and I was like, they don't use outlines, but they look like a lot like comics. So I um, tried a little bit to kind of put my style combining with that and making something different and then that the next so page? yeah it's the next one um, mm -hmm. oh yeah I don't know yeah so okay this is the original one and you can that's so it looks kind of from where you're sitting it probably won't look that different but um, this is without any ink at all it's just watercolor and it's just using color to 
um, delineate different shapes through tones and through patterns, and uh, it gives a little more depth. So that's what I'm working with now, and that's what I did the waiting room into. And actually, if you look at the waiting room, it's 20 pages long, and there's, a, to me, a marked difference between the first page and the last page, because as I'm working on this thing, I'm kind of I feel moving like around a little bit. I feel like you get a little abstract yeah. at, at one point where the figures are looking... Um, um, where the figures are looking like kind of pieced together, mm -hmm. where like you can see on here, where there's like the different coloring, the shading, of how. Yeah, one of the problems that I had with the outlining style is that when you're painting, and I was trained as a painter, I went to school for oil painting, and there's something as a painter, it's almost like I I don't know what other word to use besides delicious <laughs> to see like two different colors up against each other, like, you, you start to geek out on color a little bit, and you really just like, love the way that looks. And um, when I was doing the Israel book, I would have that often, but then, you know, I'd have to go in and put in my outline, and it's just like, putting that black line in, in between those two colors just takes away that feeling completely, that vibration that different colors have next to each other. So, doing this, this is not a great example here, but, um, using this different kind of style, it allows me to have more of that play um, between different colors and how they look together and kind of different shapes and letting the shapes talk for themselves a little bit more. It almost feels like you're also working with the idea of images as symbols. Yeah. Like just when you have certain colors together or certain objects together, it can have more of a feeling than just a straight yeah, you know, photo reference illustration. It can be a little more emotive, and I think that it's something that I'm interested in with this this work that's a little bit more strict reportage and a little bit less about like my internal emotions. Because in the Israel book, it's very explicit. I'm actually talking about my feelings. I feel this. I feel that. With this stuff, I'm going to be doing less of that. But by abstracting a little bit, you can put emotion into something else that might something might be otherwise dry and emotionless and bloodless, you can put the emotion in the visuals instead of having it in the words. And so it's something that I'm, yeah, working with a little more. Does anyone have any questions for Sarah? Give us a chance for Okay. We'll continue. We'll okay. look at the miniatures. I just want to give that option. Yeah. Um, oh. Yes. Go ahead. When you're working with this new style, you still sketch things up the way you did before, or because now you don't have the lines to shape the mm -hmm. drawing until you actually do the painting? Yeah, um, well, my process before was always, I'm a really messy underdrawer. Um, I pencil on Bristol board with colored pencil, and I really start out to compose a panel or a page, start out with a lot of just like kind of abstract shapes getting the composition together and swirling around and to, to draw a figure. I use the way I always used to do figure drawing, which is like you start with like kind of gesture and you kind of work in, and that's really, really messy. So I always do it on a different piece of paper, and then once I refine things down, I trace it onto the watercolor paper. Um, and then the water, that tracing is very neat, and then I can paint on that. But I still do the same kind of like swirly really drawing underneath. Yes. Yeah. 
under Israel, but did you do most of the panels in Israel or after you got home? No, I did them all when I got home. Um, I was able to do some drawing there, but um, it was there was so much going on and so many people talking all the time. I was wondering how you could do both. Yeah, you can't <laughs> do both. Um, there's barely enough time to take pictures and write what everyone's saying and keep walking around. Um, so, yeah, I didn't do much drawing at all while I was there. Um, but that's kind of the nice thing about when you get home, doing all that drawing once you're back, it's kind of like you're sticking or you're still in this place for years. Um, so another reason why it helps to do comics about places that you're interested in. If you're going to be drawing it every day, it might as well be a place that you actually enjoy walking around in. So these are the oh yeah. follow up question. The other thing I've noticed compared to reading the book is it took me much longer to read this because I looked at the panels a lot. And is that typical? You're a good reader. Yeah, you're a perfect <laughs> comics reader. I think I have problems reading comics sometimes because I get carried along by a story and I don't look at the pictures enough and I'm reading the words and oftentimes I have to read a comic twice to get everything out of it because I read it once through and then later I go back and just kind of look at the pictures more. But I wish I could be just be more patient as a reader and kind of take my time like that. But you're the ideal reader for <laughs> us. We, we're what, you're what we're looking for. Yeah, when I went, I had no idea. And even when I started making, okay, so this is what happened. I had no idea if this would work or not. And when I came back, I started making mini comics of this. I knew I was going to do a book before I went on the trip, but when I came back, I started working on the mini comic. The idea of getting published for this was like so far away from what my reality was. I just thought, well, I'll make a mini comic of the first chapter. And if people like it, if people actually want to read it, then I'll make another one. Um, but as far as I was concerned, I was like, nobody wants to hear about Israel-Palestine anymore. So, but people did. It, I think it being a comic made people want to read more. So I made a second chapter. And I had those chapters at MoCA, which is kind of like Stumptown in New York. And that's, that was in 2008. And Vertigo was looking for more comics and more original graphic novels that were... Uh, talking with memoir and politics, so they actually came to the table and picked up the mini comics. And um, you know, this guy comes over to my table wearing a DC Comics badge and asked me what my book was about. And I said, "This guy doesn't care. He's <laughs> busy with Batman." So I was totally not nervous, and I gave him my little elevator speech about the book. I was like, "Oh yeah, well, I took this trip." Blah blah blah. And um, he bought the minis, and he went away. And two days later they emailed me and they said, we're interested in making this into a book. Would you like to do it with us? And I was just blown away. So, yeah, they found me. Um, I was just really lucky and I was in the right place at the right time, like the actual right time for comics publishing. Right now it's a lot more difficult. Um, but, yeah, that's how that happened. Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> Thank you, Vertigo. Um, 
I didn't put up any photos. But something I want to ask about is the experience that you had at your studio watching, observing the stuff going on in Egypt. Mm-hmm. That seemed like a pretty profound thing that you guys had gone through. Well, you know, it's you're over there and you're talking to people and, you know, then we come back and one month after we got back from the region, it just started. All this exciting stuff started happening over there. So I think that, you know, me and Domiti Kalardi, one of my studio mates, we made this little comic about watching the revolution in Egypt happening. And I think it was just a similar experience to what everyone else has, you know, watching something happen from far away. All you can really do is watch, you know, Al Jazeera's live feed and the Twitter streams and, like, you're really powerless. You're just watching an event happening and you're rooting, you're hoping that the right thing happens and that, the, you know, the people come out <laughs> on top in the end. And that's all. We just made this comic about um, what it feels like to just be watching and to be happy for somebody else. I don't know. There's not much to say about that. I, guess. I really like that. Thank you. <laughs> I forgot to bring up the past round. I think that's our time, unless there's any more questions. One more. Oh, I mean, every both times that I've gone on one of these big trips, I just get like a book that's not too big to carry around all the time, but it's big enough, and I usually fill them up all the way. Um, I'll probably keep them, like. Because there's something about looking at it. It's not just the words that are in the notes. Sometimes when you're taking notes, just remembering what it was like when you were writing that note down can bring back other memories that aren't necessarily in the notes themselves. Um, So it's definitely really valuable to have those books there. And I always keep them at my desk while I'm working and have them for reference. Um, So, yeah, I'll keep them forever, probably. (laughs) All right. Yep. When you've exhausted all the story possibilities of the Middle East, never <laughs> happen. Are there, <laughs> are there other corners of the world that are floating on the periphery and intriguing? Yes, um, and I don't plan on only doing stuff about the Middle East. Actually, it's coincidental. I wanted to do a project with the Common Language Project, um, and it just so happened that they were going to the region next door to Israel. But I would have done something. We were also thinking about the former Soviet states. We were also thinking about Latin America, but it just so happened that we were going there. But um, that is the place that interests me the most, but I really want to do something about this country next. Um, And also about international shipping, which really, really interests me, which I guess is not one specific region. It's kind of the in-between regions. But, yeah, I I really would like to look into what's going on in my own backyard, too. Um, specifically agriculture in America because I'm really interested in that. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks.
Change my 